You're listening to the Carterville Church Life Podcast. I love our church family, and I hope that you do too. Our goal is that the episodes of this podcast would keep us connected and focused while we're scattered for our week on missions together. I hope that you're blessed by what you hear today. Hey, church family, welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to take the next step on reading our Bible better. Today, I want to talk about literary context. And much to their chagrin, I am joined by two staff members, Corey Jenkins and Jeremy Stroh. So, uh, hey guys, thanks for being on the podcast today. Hey, buddy. Hey. All right, so this the word that I'm about to say is one of the most important words, in my opinion, for interpreting the Bible better. And that word is context. I want our church family to be aware of context when they read the Bible. But let me explain what I mean by that. In general, you know, the context is just be aware of what's happening. You know, what, what's the situation and setting. Specifically, in this episode of the podcast, I'm talking about the words that are around the verse you're reading. The literary context. In other words, if the verse that I'm reading is, you know, verse, let's say, 20, I want to know what was said in verse 19, 18, 17, 16. Might even be helpful to know what was said in the entire chapter or what's been said in the book. The big idea is this, that whoever wrote that verse, they wrote it within a clear thought. They were moving somewhere. And learning to follow that idea and get hints from context is key, I think, to interpreting the Bible better. So before we use an example passage and talk about this, there's a lot of stuff that the context, that the literary context, the words on the page around your verse can help us with. I'm just going to ask Stro and Corey, I know you guys are having to think on your feet, but I just want to ask you guys to share, you know, from your experience, when you've learned to read the Bible in its context, when you've learned to find the word or the verse you're interpreting situated inside all these words that are around it, what are some of the things that you guys have found to be helpful tools, tips, or like keys? So give us something here that we can use. Stroke, Corey's pointing at you. You get to go first. Um, man, the question, what did whoever the author is, Paul, or whatever, what did he mean by that is really important. Words can mean a lot of different things. And the best way to know what he meant is to use his own words. Mm-hmm. And so I'll do the best job I can of going, all right, Paul, you've just said this phrase. Um, what do you mean by it? And I'll use 15 sentences before that three or four sentences after, to make sure that whatever I think Paul means, I can I can back up with other things that Paul has said right before it or right after it. So it's paying attention to understand the words and how Paul is using them. Not how I want to use them, not how they feel to me, not what I think, but to be able to go, what was Paul trying to communicate? So whenever we think about that, it's just connecting. So the relationship of words is really important. Mm-hmm. What if there's a that, if there's a this, if there's a therefore, can I be able to go, what words are these supposed to connect to? And making sure that I'm, that I'm not trying to reach out in my own world and story and experience and try yeah. to bring to those words in the text meanings that Paul never would have thought of. You know, a big idea for me, Stro, around this was um, when I was first learning some of this stuff. Was It's almost as if... Um, I used to approach a Bible verse, and if I wanted to teach about a verse or understand a verse, I might as well have taken scissors and cut that verse out of the page of the Bible so that it's the only thing I'm thinking about. And the the dangerous thing is, when I approached it that way, I could make it mean almost anything 
that I wanted because those words and phrases did not have anchors into the thought of the spirit-inspired apostle or Jesus or whoever whoever I'm I'm reading, right? And so that's kind of dangerous, but that's basically what I was doing when I was ignoring the context. Stro, you gave a tip, like kind of between podcast episodes, you and I were chatting, um, about this tool called phrasing, mm-hmm. right? And so this is, I mean, I realize that our, our, our church folks, you're not going to do this every time you have a devotion. However, Sunday school teachers, um, people who are presenting, who are trying to get to the bottom of a tricky passage, some of you guys, and you don't have to use any examples, but... You know, Stro, would you just kind of give us what is this idea of phrasing that you and I were talking about off the mic a few minutes ago? Sure, yeah. So it's just being able to look at a phrase that Paul says and go, okay, well, what's the particular noun? What's the particular verb? What does that verb apply to? If there's a noun doing an action, um, what action is it doing and what's it doing it towards? Um, making sure that we don't just connect random words. Man, if we're not careful in our eagerness to, to teach a truth from Scripture, something that we've heard before, something that we've shared in our Christian life, our Christian story, we'll just grab a really nice truth and plant it on top of anything that we read if it shares one word in common. And instead, the idea of phrasing is to take a phrase and make sure that all your words are connected. What did Paul mean in this particular moment? You, just because it's true doesn't mean that that's what Paul meant. So you can speak something true, a Christian truth, a Christian good teaching over a text, and totally miss Paul's point because Paul wasn't talking about that. So, like, phrasing, if I remember the way that it works, it's a, by the way, I think every English teacher uh, sure. or homeschool mom in our church who's listening to the podcast today is smiling and saying, diagram sentences, sure. right? Um, it's it's kind of like diagramming sentences, but not exactly. It's trying to make you fo- carefully read text. But if I remember phrasing correctly when we first started to use it in seminary, it's basically, you know, break this paragraph or these sentences into phrases, into the units that they in which they exist. You know, clauses or nouns, verbs, you know, however that thought unit is delivered. Break it into small independent phrases. And then as you begin to write them out on the text, Situate it so that a phrase that is a modifier of another word or phrase, you know, is below. You write it out below it on the page so that you're forced to pay attention to the relationship between the words and the phrases in this paragraph, you know, of scripture. Uh, is that more or less how you were taught to do phrasing, Jeremy? Did, were you taught any other skills that, like, you know, did you circle things or draw lines? Was there something else that you do? when you use the tool phrasing? No, that's pretty much it. Okay. Corey, context, literary context, the words on the page around the verse we're interpreting. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me some of the ways that's helpful for you as you read your Bible. Yeah, I think some of it goes back to what Stroh was saying, just getting a really good understanding of what the author was um, meaning in that context to the original audience. Um, some of it for me um, is not only looking at the immediate context, but also just the book as a whole. So, for instance, I'm going through Acts with students right now on Wednesday nights. Um, one of the first areas to really is the intro of Acts to understand who's writing and who are they writing to and what's the purpose. And then I use that and go into the immediate context to look at what's before my passage, what's after. Is there any common themes in the passages? Um you know, Acts is a really great example because Acts is almost like, and you, you know, you guys may say, oh, Ben, you're forcing that on the text. Because I do hear people who say, you know, you can't hang that much weight on the verse I'm about to use. But, you know, Acts 
a lot of biblical interpreters uh, approach Acts this way. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the apostles, you know, you're going to be my witness. The Holy Spirit's going to come over you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And a lot of Bible teachers approach Acts as if the rest of the book is somewhat an unfolding of that of that statement from Jesus. Mm-hmm. That you get to read the progress of the church, more or less, you know, from the church in Jerusalem until the church reaching out to the ends of the earth, you know, when Paul gets to Rome. And so that's a really good example of how, like, not just the immediate context, like not just the, the 10 to 20 verses around it, but sometimes like even the chapters or the whole flow of the book. You know, that's also really big in the Gospels. When you're reading the narratives of the life of Jesus, sometimes to situate yourself, you know, within the context of the whole story of that Gospel makes some some verse or teaching make a lot more sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. I think a lot of times the parables of Jesus for me, and this is almost yeah. social, not just literary, but like if the Pharisees are standing there listening to him when he teaches, if Matthew told you that, well then it's not a surprise to me if this parable addresses a problem that the Pharisees had, you know, or whatever. So sometimes just being a pay, paying attention to the, to the, if Matthew says, and the Pharisees were standing there, or if Luke says, the Pharisees who loved money were, you know, if you, if, if the author gave you those words, they were important. And those words may have been given 10 verses ago, but they probably shed some light on what you're reading right now. Pay attention, right? Yeah. Okay, I want to use a classic example. Um, I love this example because when the first, the first time I heard it in seminary, when a Bible professor said, you know, I'll give you an example of not paying attention to the context. It's in Matthew chapter 18. Um, the first time they, they gave this example, I smiled because I thought, Oh my gosh, I've said that a million times. And so if you're listening to the podcast today and you're going to hear this verse where I'm going to say, look, we've been doing eisegesis, not exegesis. We've been making this mean what we wanted it to mean instead of hearing from the text. And literary context shows you if you feel guilty, I was guilty before you were. So here we go. The verse specifically is chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, verse 20. The statement is this, where two or more uh, where where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And I, I read it where it said two or more gather in my name, there I am uh, with them. I used to use that, and I hear people today use that, in the context of worship, right? For Maybe it's a low attendance Sunday or not a lot of people turned out for the youth rally or whatever. And, you know, the well-meaning preacher, me, walks up before worship and says, Hey, listen, there's not many of us here, but you know what the Bible says, Right. Where two or more gathered, you know, Jesus is right there in our midst, you guys. So God is here with us. Uh, turns out that's not what this passage is saying at all. Now, Jeremy, to a point you made earlier, it's theologically true that where two Christian people stand together, Jesus is there simply because God is omnipresent. Sure. So he was there when it was just one of us, right? <laughs> so, it's the, so it's not theologically untrue that God is there. That's not what the passage is saying. What I'm about to show you is that this passage is talking about kicking people out of church, but you need two or more witnesses in order to do it. Let's t- let me show you. Let me show you. Corey, you're laughing. I'm, you? I'm bringing them back in. Like okay. The idea would be to bring them back in. Sure, yes, sure, yes, sure. Yes. We, we'd love for them to be restoring. The restoring. Right. All right, Corey, you're laughing at me. Why don't you start then? So verse 15, if you'll kick off our reading, read a couple verses. We're going to read all the way to verse 20. Hey, podcast listener, as you hear this verse, listen to the context. Follow the flow of thought in Matthew's gospel so that when you read verse 20, 
you hear it situated within its paragraphs. Go ahead. So start with chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault when the two of you are alone. If he listens to you, you have regained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, so that at the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be established. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you release on earth will have been, been released in heaven. Again, I tell you the truth, if two of you on earth agree about whatever you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are assembled in my name, I am there among them. Okay. So in this passage, Jesus is like referring back to this Jewish principle of two or two or more well, witnesses, two or more elders making decisions, you know, reach consensus, you know, representing God, serving him on earth. But in this case, the attempt is to restore a Christian who is sinning. That if a if a Christian person is sinning against you and will not repent, you know, you go with you go in private, you go with witnesses, and eventually if they continue in unrepentance, then you you bring it to the church. And if they won't repent when the church approaches them, then on the authority of those witnesses, you remove them from the church. I mean, that's church discipline. That's very different yeah. than the warmth of a worship service saying, you know, hey, are you ready to, to worship? All right, that's just an example, though, of how, how reading the words around your verse, the context, mm-hmm. will help you know what was meant by the passage. So church family, as you begin, to pay attention to the words, the phrases, the language around the thought uh, that builds up to your verse and comes out after your verse, you're going to be much more likely to begin to put the pieces together and interpret the Bible well. Hey, I love you. Thanks for using these podcasts. If this episode is helpful to you, feel free to share it with somebody that you love. Thanks. God bless you. Can't wait to see you tonight.